Amen. When the people of Israel, they see the bleakness of their future with Samuel's wicked sons, that they are about to become judges over them, they ask for a king to be like all the nations around them. To ask such a thing was to reject God as their king. But God willingly gave them what they desired. A man like no one in all of Israel. He was wealthy. He was handsome. He was tall. He looked like a king. He looked the part. But when Samuel privately anoints Saul, and then God confirms that anointing as sure and true, Saul is reluctant to fulfill God's calling for him. That's the private anointing, which we saw last week. And then comes the public proclamation of Saul's anointing, as we're going to look at today. There are two truths in this passage that are used to press us to ask the question, how much faith and hope do we put in earthly kings and authorities to save us? The first truth, first truth is that Saul is called as king and is chosen by Israel. And then the second is that Saul is a king chosen by God. And yes, both of those are true. Israel has clearly rejected God as their judge and king. And Samuel, he actually says as much in verse 16. But today you have rejected your God. So who is this man in whom they put their hope and faith? Well, first, he's a man who is unlike any other in the nation of Israel, at least physically. And when Saul is standing before the people, everybody noticed He was the big guy. He was the tall one. Look at him. What a specimen. Holy cow. This is going to be great. He's impressive. He looks the part. And the people are shown exactly what they want to see. They are shown the man that they want to choose. But Saul was a man with some very serious flaws. And we've looked at that the past couple of weeks. But when the people looked for Saul, okay, so he's chosen, Saul's nowhere to be found. He had hid himself so well, in fact, that the people had to ask God, okay, so is there somebody else or is Saul around here someplace? Where is he? And they find him hiding in the baggage He's hiding amongst the pile of stuff brought by the people for their journey. This is their king. He wasn't accidentally lost. He wasn't trying to serve the people by organizing their traveling baggage. He is avoiding them, and he's avoiding his call. Now, this should have been a sign to the people that on the inside, this man was not what he seemed to be on the outside. But they cheer him anyway. Long live the king! This is our king! He was hiding amongst the luggage. Yay! Israel has chosen a king of their liking. They look past all of that. 
despite all the warnings, despite all the red flags, they have chosen a man who looks the part of king. He looks like the king of all the other nations. He is strong. He is mighty. He will fight their battles for them. He will judge them. He will save Israel, not only from the leadership of Samuel's wicked sons, but from all calamities and all distresses. This is the man. Saul is a king of their own choosing, but he is also king of God's choosing. When the people present themselves before the Lord, lots are used to determine which tribe, clan, and family the king would come from. Now, from a human standpoint, this sounds uh, like casting lots seems like it's a game of chance, right? You're just gambling. Well, I think that maybe this is the guy who's going to be there. Let's just roll the dice and find out. But in the Old Testament, casting lots was used in specific situations to determine God's will and his desire. For case in point, the high priest had, had two animals before him. One would be sacrificed and one would be let go outside the camp and they cast lots to find out which one was which. So there are specific situations where lots are used. Not every situation, okay? We don't cast lots like for Sunday school teachers or elders. You know, we, don't, we don't do that. We don't do that. In this case today, the lot falls on Saul. It's a public proclamation that God has chosen Saul to be the first king of Israel. So, because you, you might go into this and go, well, God already knows who it is. He's already been privately anointed. Samuel knows who it is. Saul even knows who it is. And if you want to even go further, the, the servant of Saul probably are, knows who it is. Why don't they just proclaim him? Well, using lots... Prove to the people, this is not a man from Samuel's choosing. This is a man of God's choosing. God has chosen Saul to be your king. And Samuel makes it even more clear when he says in verse 24, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Now there's probably a a double meaning in that. Like, look at how great he is. Oh, by the way, he was in the luggage hiding. This is your king. This is whom God has chosen for you. And the people either miss it or they ignore it and they go, yay, he's our king. But on top of this, God touches the heart of certain men of valor to follow Saul. He's not alone. God doesn't just say, well, you're the king, now let's watch him fail. No, he puts men in his charge who are called men of valor. He touches their heart. Now, this isn't a a gentle heart change of like, yeah, I need to think about whether I'm going to follow Saul or not. It is actually an aggressive change. It's not a softening of the heart, but it's a violent desire to serve the king in battle. That's what that means, to touch the heart of these men. They are called men of valor for a reason. They are warriors. They kill people if asked to. And God puts them in Saul's leadership. These are warriors given by God to confirm Saul is your king and I have chosen him to be your king. So Saul is exactly who Israel wants and they have clearly chosen him. But all of this is orchestrated, it's ordained, it happens 
by God himself. He makes this happen. He has chosen Saul, and he has given Israel exactly who they want. Saul is ordained by God to lead the people of Israel. And so it is today with rulers, leaders, and authorities. Human rulers, human authorities are chosen and ordained by God, okay? Romans 13. If you got your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Now, there is, there is a lot in all of these passages we're going to look at, including the, the passage of 1 Samuel. We're not going to be able to touch on everything, but this is what God says through Paul, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Now, you can go on and continue to read later, later, not during the sermon. Continue to, talk, to look later about submission to authorities and what does that actually mean. But this is, what, this is what God says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, we could go into the whole thing like good government, bad government, good authority, bad authority. That's, that's not where we're going. That's a great discussion. It's a very important discussion. But the whole point of this is that first part. There is no authority that is placed over the people except from God. And those that have been instituted by God. But what about those leaders who are incompetent? What about those leaders that are just poor leaders or maybe even evil, evil leaders? So let's go to the extreme. Am I saying that Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and the like were all appointed by God? No, I am not saying that. God is saying that. God says that. I don't like that, by the way. Just want to let you know. But it's the truth. God installed those horrible, evil men, and through them, millions of people were killed and murdered. That's the truth of what God's Word says. And we see it throughout Scripture. Can we say that the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the the Assyrians were domineering and even evil towards Israel? Absolutely. But it is clear that though Israel would become slaves for hundreds of years, God sent them into Egypt to ultimately save them. It's also clear that both the Assyrians and then the Babylonians were sent by God to punish Israel for their sinful and rebellious adultery against them. That's um, Hosea, Jeremiah, a lot of the prophets, that's what they talk about. You have committed adultery against God. Now, these people are going to come in to destroy you. And there will only be a tiny remnant left that are faithful to God. Assyria, for instance, had no idea that they were serving God. They were just doing what they always do. Hey, look, there's a country. Let's go conquer it. Okay. But what to them was just what they always do, it is also clear in Isaiah 10 that Assyria would be held accountable for their actions against Israel, even though God used them to fulfill his purposes and his desires. So do we see, do we see this? He puts authorities over Israel, sometimes to guide and to bless, sometimes to judge. 
but God has placed them over them. He uses them, these authorities and rulers, for His purposes and His desires. And at the same time, those ruling authorities will be held accountable for their actions. This brings up a whole host of questions about God's sovereignty over all things and then the human responsibility that we just don't have time for. I mean, Packers aren't playing today, so I could go till 3 o'clock. I don't really care, but yeah, you know what? I want to be here next week, so we're not going to go into that. We can talk about that um, at another time. But the point is to say that all authorities, both good and bad, are appointed and ordained by God. Sometimes we don't know exactly why. Why was Hitler put in place? I don't know. I could guess. But the Bible is clear that the authorities are placed over us for a reason. We don't always understand. They have been placed in that position by God and for the accomplishment of His purposes, but those authorities will be held accountable by God for all of their actions. So that kind of answers the question of, well, what if they're a bad government? They're held accountable. What if they're a good government? They're held accountable. Human rulers and authorities are chosen and ordained by God. That is true. But those rulers and authorities can never save us from all calamities and distresses. That's, that's what this passage is getting at in, in 1 Samuel. They put their hope in Saul. This is brought into stark contrast with how God describes himself in verses 18 and 19. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you out of Israel, uh, up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Saul looks the part, but he will not be able to save them from all their calamities. The next king, David, a man of God's choosing, a man after God's own heart, not only isn't he able to save them from all of their calamities and distresses, this is actually the reason for a lot of their calamities and distresses. And you bring this into today's society, and the truth still holds true. Many put their hope in the next elected official. Let's just put it in our, our culture, our world, our, our country. We put our hope in the next elected official, maybe not to rid them of all our calamities and distresses, but maybe most of them, right? If this person can only get elected, from every, then everything is going to be so much better. Poverty, racism, personal freedom, equality, financial burdens, division, hatred, everything is just going to be so much better. Now, don't hear me to say that we should just get rid of all elected officials. That's called chaos, and that is wrong, and God set authorities for a reason to have those controls over society. But the reality is, is that there is no human being on earth, no matter how sincere, no matter what policy, no matter how charismatic, no matter how powerful, who can save us from all calamities, all troubles, all persecution, all pain, all suffering, all anxiety, and all stress. 
Should all the world unite under one government with the most benevolent emperor ruling and having authority over all earthly matters, this truth will still stand. Why? Because of the common denominator of sin. We are not perfect. All rulers and authorities over us are not perfect. Saul was a sinner. David was a sinner. Abraham was a sinner. Paul, Peter, James, John, they were all sinners. The president, the governor, mayor, pastor, elder, teacher. Guess what? They're all sinners. They all sin. I sin. You sin. And none of us can save anyone from all calamities and distress. How many of you watch Finding Nemo? You know what the big problem? Yeah, there's a few. Come on, admit it. How many of you seen Finding Nemo? Yeah, there you go. Uh huh. And what is the main problem with with Nemo's dad? He says, "I'm never going to let anything happen to you." And what does Dory say? And I'm paraphrasing. Well, well, that's a silly promise. You can't ever keep everything from you can't make nothing happen in their life bad things are going to happen good things are going to happen what control as a parent do i have over every situation in my child's life and i tell you if anybody on this earth that i have the most control and authority over it is my children and they still make mistakes we'll talk about that this afternoon right <laughs> but this is the reality sin is still there None of us, no one can save anyone from all calamities and distress. But, what do I say about that word? It's the greatest word in the Bible. It's so powerful. Sin is there. Authorities, man, they're going to mess up. No matter what level of authority, but there is one who can save us from all calamities and distress. In fact, there's only one who has and who will. First Peter chapter five. Uh, we're not going to turn this, but I, you can write it down and look it up later. First Peter chapter five, verses six through eleven, and I'm going to read it here in a second. It points to the truth of Christ's sufficiency and His power to save us from all calamities and distress. So I want you to hear this carefully because we're going to deal some, with some a little bit of troubles with this passage um, afterwards. But hear these words, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. And he's talking to his children. This is God speaking to his children, those who believe in his son, Jesus Christ, those who are his part of his family. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to, this eternal, to his eternal glory in Christ, 
will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is what Peter's saying. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. He is in control. He is sovereign. He is powerful. Oh, he is, he's an authority over all things. And cast all of your anxiety, all of your calamities, all of your distress, all of your troubles, all of your pain. You cast it on him. Why? Because God cares for his children. In the world you will have tribulation, Jesus says in John 16. Troubles, trials, hardships, disease, death, injustice, poverty, pain, suffering, tribulation, and persecution, just to name a few. Man, they're everywhere, right? How many times in the last two years as a believer have you said, come Lord Jesus, come? If you're like me, every single day. You will have troubles. You are guaranteed to have troubles. From the smallest irritation to the, the biggest heartbreaking and wrenching issue and circumstance. You will have troubles, Jesus says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Many of you right now are in the middle of calamity and distress of all kinds. And you say, God hasn't taken away my troubles. He hasn't taken away my cancer or the cancer of somebody I love. He hasn't taken away this family division. He hasn't taken away the addiction or the sin that so easily entangles us. He hasn't taken away the heartbreak of a broken marriage or broken relationships. He hasn't, he hasn't done any of that. You're in the middle of it right now. You are daily fighting a battle in which you feel completely alone. And so I want you to hear the words of Christ again. He says, take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Christ has overcome all calamities and all distress which means you may be in the middle of the most horrific, heartbreaking, painfully difficult circumstance. But after a while, those calamities are going to come to an end. Now, this isn't just me saying, like, which this is true. Like, today is a bad day, but tomorrow's a new day, okay? But that's kind of cliche. It's like, look for the rainbow coming after the rain, right? If you know me, I would just want to throw up in my mouth right now. Like, that's just, because in real life, you go, but in this moment, I can't see the sun shining. It's hard for me to see this. I'm, the calamity that I am under, I'm broken. What else do I do? I'm hurting. People around me are hurting. What do I, what do, I do? Take heart. The calamities are going to come to an end eventually. You see, the little while that God is speaking of is not time as we count it here on earth. It's an eternal time. Compared to eternity, a thousand years is a quick blip on the radar, right? We believe that. I mean, we, we truly, if you are a, a Christian, you say, yes, that is absolutely true. And weeks or months are like a wisp of cloud, here one moment and gone the next. 
amen and amen. And every Christian goes, yes. For the Christian, we have to remind ourselves all suffering, all calamity, all distress, all anxiety will one day disappear. And we who were called as, as his children to his eternal glory will be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. I've had conversations with people who say, well, it must be difficult as a pastor to do funerals. And I said, only those who are unbelievers. Because you can't preach them into heaven. They hated God their entire life. They're not going to love him for eternity. And they say, but it must be, it must be, be around death all the time and, and, and to, to deal with grieving families and stuff. And, and it actually, I mean, yes, it's difficult to a certain degree, but it's also one of my greatest joys as a pastor to be able to sit with believing families. Because my, my grandfather was a godly man his entire life, died at 96, the last two years of his life he was this strong, independent man. In the last two years of his life, he was stuck in a nursing home. He spoke German. Nobody spoke German to him. And he basically just withered away. And he had pain. He was lonely. He had calamities. But I don't weep for my Opa. I don't weep for him. I'm jealous of him because he's in a way better place than I am. And that's not just a cliche. He is in the eternal presence of Jesus Christ. No tears, no sorrow, no sin, no suffering, no calamities, no anxiety. He is in the presence of pure and perfect glory and righteousness. And he is enjoying it. While I'm here on earth seeing pain and death and suffering and anxiety and experiencing it myself. We may be, you may be in the middle of suffering, but the day will come when all of that will disappear. Yes, it might happen tomorrow. Praise Jesus. I hope it does, right? Like, if we can get out of this, whew, but guess what? There's another day coming. We live in a sinful world, and pain and suffering is going to happen again. We're going to find ourselves in the middle of horrid situations. We who are called as his children, Peter says, to his eternal glory. As Christians, we keep our mind eternally, not on the here and now. We don't ignore what's in front of us, but we always look ahead. Why do we not get so worked up and about the things of this world to the point where, maybe you say, why shouldn't we get so worked up about the things of this world? Is because we have an eternal mindset and we believe that God is sovereign. Because he tells us Christ himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Our strength is not found in the authorities of this world. They cannot save us. You cannot save yourself. I cannot save myself from all calamities, no matter how much I try. But I know the one who can, and I know the one who will. He is our king. He is the true king. That's what Saul points to. You see the failures of character. You see the, the failures, the desire to do his own thing instead of the call of God. You see that in Saul, and it should drive us to the true king who has the power and authority over all things, all situations, 
all calamities, all distresses. To Him be the dominion and glory and honor and praise forever and ever. Amen. I mean, when you have to say forever twice, what does that mean? It means forever and ever and ever. There's never going to be a time in heaven where you will experience what you are experiencing right now. Never. If you are a child of God. And so we have to end today with the same question that we began with. How much hope and faith do we put in earthly kings and authorities? Or let's go personal, ourselves or our family or our friends, to save us. Or perhaps maybe a better way to ask this, uh, ask it is this way. How much faith and hope do we put in God to save us? This passage challenges us to rethink how we view the authorities and rulers of this world, but it also convicts us for how we have made those same authorities our rescuers and our deliverers from all of the ills of our life. And I don't care how nice they are, they will let us down in the end. They might do some great things, but in the end, they're going to fail. This passage unveils to us the one Savior, the one Redeemer, the one Protector, the one and only true King who is over all things, and His name is Jesus Christ. What did we just sing? Christ is all, Christ is all. And then we walk out this door and through a massive hissy fit because we're not Things aren't happening the way we want. And we get broken because we get focused on that. Do we sing these words and then we just let it go when we walk out that story? Like, well, I mean, Christ is all right now, but as soon as I go out in the real world, eh, he's kind of like second or third. We can't do that as God's people. We just can't. It will break us. Do we see Christ for who he really is? So we say, this is your king. Do you see who God has chosen for you? God's son, perfect in power over all things. That is your king. Now how will you respond? How will I respond? Now that we have been called to task as his people to think about who Christ is. Do we truly follow him? And do, our, do we have our faith and our hope in him alone? Father, I ask that you would not make this, these words from, 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 from Saul and Samuel to to fall away as soon as we walk out this door. For all of us, Father, myself included, Father, we would walk out of this and when the cares of this world, when the troubles of this world come because they will come to know that we know the true King Jesus Christ. And even if in this moment for the next 80 years we suffer, the day will come, you will restore your people There will be a new heavens and a new earth. You will restore the garden, Father, and we will walk with you in perfection. We will walk with you in sinlessness, no grief, 
no pain, no calamity, no distress. Father, help us to live a life as your people, not consumed by the things of this world, not ignoring them either, but to not be consumed by them, to put our trust and authority in failed and flawed leaders to the point where we, they are our Savior because there is only one, your Son, Father. I was to live that, to believe it, change our hearts. Consume us with this truth, Father, this week. Correct us, convict us, and encourage us that the day will come when you will you will lift us up as your children and there will be a day of no pain and no sorrow and no calamity for you have the dominion over all things forever and ever. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing our last song.